0: Shalom, I'm Yaakov, and you're listening to Line Upon Line, a podcast dedicated to a Messiah essential understanding of the scriptures. In today's episode, we look at Amos chapter 2. This chapter concludes the opening prophetic indictment against the nations with words spoken against Moab, one of Israel's greatest historic enemies. The last nation to be charged is Yehuda and Israel. No, this isn't a grammatical error. Judah and Israel, in spite of their being divided into two separate kingdoms at this point in history, are nonetheless Am-Echad, one people, a complex unity. So complex, in fact, as to be a divided unity. This, in part, is what God is addressing through the prophet Amos. Reconciliation to God means reconciliation to one another. Through destruction and exile, that is the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, God will unite and return Israel to the land as a whole people. The people will return to Judea, to the remnant of the tribe of Judah, And thus, from the conclusion of the Babylonian exile onward, all the tribes of Israel become known colloquially as Yudim, Jews, because of their association with Judah, with Judea. Effectively, the opening words of indictment expressed in the scroll of Amos, that is in chapters 1 and 2, have addressed the neighbouring enemies of all Israel, that is all 12 tribes, many of whom Israel had formerly been charged with eradicating from the land, in descending order from the then most recently active to that first and perhaps most notorious of enemies, Moab, who came against Israel seeking to curse and annihilate her as she wandered out of Egypt toward the land of promise. And you can read about that in Numbers chapters 22 through 25. The litany of charges again in chapter 1 and 2, addresses first the sin of the nations regarding universal moral law and then the sin of Judah and Israel regarding their violating of the sacred covenant made between God and their forebears. The charges against Judah and Israel are more detailed and have far-reaching consequences. However, ultimately, the final consequences of Israel's discipline are her redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. This, because Yudhe Vavhe, whose name denotes mercy, the God of Israel, El Elohe Israel has purposed in love that radiates from His Holiness to redeem Israel and the nations by His own everlasting blood through the King Messiah Yeshua, who is fully God and fully man. Before we begin going line upon line through this chapter, let me read you my translation in its entirety from the Hebrew text. Amos chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Here is what Yudhei Vavhei the Lord says Upon three rebellions of Moab, and upon four I will not turn away, upon his burning bones of a king of Edom to whitewash, and I will send fire in Moab, and it will eat the citadels of Kiryot. And death in an uproar will come to Moab amid the sounding of judgment in the voice of the shofar, the ram's horn. And I will cut off a judge from her inner part, and all her princes will be slain with him, says Adonai the Lord. Here is what Yudhevavheh, Adonai the Lord, says Upon three rebellions of Judah, and upon four, I will not turn away. Upon their rejecting the instructions of Adonai, the Lord, and the prescribed limits they have not guarded, and astray they wander because of lies which their fathers walked in, and I will send fire upon Yehuda, and it will eat the citadels of Yerushalayim. Here is what Vave the Lord, says. Upon three rebellions of Israel, and upon four, I will not turn away. Upon their selling for silver, a righteous one, and the needy in order to get a pair of sandals, they breathe heavily upon dust of the land, on the head of the ones who are low, and the way of the humble they have bent." and a man and his father enter the same servant girl with intent to pollute my holy name, and upon clothing bound in pledge stretched out near every altar, and the wine of those condemned, or fined, they drink in a house of their God, and I, indeed I, destroyed the Amorite." from before their faces, whose height was like cedars, and strong was he like oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from higher up still, and his roots from beneath. And I, yes I, caused you all to ascend from the land of Egypt, and you all walked in the desert forty years to take possession of the land from the Amorites." And I raised up from your children some to be prophets, and from your young men some to be Nazarites. Is this not so, children of Israel, declares yud heh Adonai, the Lord? And you forced the Nazarites to drink wine, and you placed upon the prophets orders, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, now pay attention." I am making a rut beneath you, like that which is made by the pressing of the cart when it's filled with sheaves of grain. And escape will perish from the swift, and the strong will not be strengthened because of his power, and the mighty will not deliver his soul, and the one who grasps the bow will not stand, the swift in foot will not slip away. And the rider of the horse will not save his soul, and the mighty of heart among the mighty ones will flee naked in that day, declares Yudhe Vavhe Adonai, the Lord. Now let's take a look at the chapter line upon line, beginning with verse one. Here is what Yudhe Vavhe, whose name denotes mercy, that is the Lord. Says, upon three rebellions of Moab, whose name means from his father, and upon four I will not turn away, upon his burning bones of a king of Edom to lime, to whitewash. A heinous root of sin was established in Moab, a people related to Israel being descended from Lot, Avram's brother, from his conception, Moab being the son born to Lot's eldest daughter through incest. We read about that in Genesis nineteen thirty to 38. Moab later became notorious as a people for their hatred of Israel and their calling on the false prophet Baalam, whose name means not of the people, to curse Israel as she journeyed out of Egypt toward the land of promise. We read about this in Numbers chapters 22 through to 25. Moab's many sins included horrific idolatrous practices in worship of the false gods Chemosh, whose name means subduer, and Baal-peor, whose name means husband or master of the gap. Hosea, one of the contemporaries of Amos, writes, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripeness in the fig tree in her first fruiting time, but they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame and their abominations were according to their love. Hosea 9.10 Israel, the ten tribes, having been delivered by God from slavery in Egypt, along with Judah and Benjamin, of course, and brought out of the desert into the land of promise, had nonetheless rejected less rejected vav and gone after the demonic husband Baal-Peor, God of the Moabites the Moabites being enemies and haters of Israel. Jeremiah likens the shame of Moab's worship of Chemosh to Israel's apostate worship at Bethel in Jeremiah 48.13. God is indicting Moab while pointing toward Israel's syncretism. Thus, this indictment of Moab is also the beginning of the indictment against all of Israel. It's worth noting again that Moab means from his father. This is significant because it points to the indictment against Judah in verse 4, which says that Judah has gone astray because of the lies which their fathers walked in. The phrase upon his burning of a king of Edom to lime or to whitewash is an interesting one. The Tagum, that is an ancient Aramaic translation of the scriptures, and the Jewish commentators Yahi and Kimchi say that a ruler of Moab burnt the bones of a king of Edom until they became powder likened to lime and then used the powder in a recipe for plaster, which he used to plaster the walls of his palace in order to show contempt for Edom. It appears highly likely that the king in question was the heir to the throne of Edom, whom the king of Moab offered as a burnt sacrifice to his gods on the wall of Edom's defences, as recorded in 2 Kings three. 26 to 27 bone ash called lime in the English translations of the Tanakh that is what Christians call the Old Testament was used in ancient formulas for white paint and cosmetic pigments and in the copulation process to separate silver from lead While in many cases the bone ash used to whitewash tombs and that utilized in ancient cosmetics was derived from the calcination of animal bones, the indictment used here in scripture infers the use of the ash of the bones of a king of Edom as whitewash. This is a vile desecration of moral law concerning the sanctity of human life and the honoring of human remains. The Torah says that blood guilt remains on the land and cannot be atoned for except by the blood of the one guilty of shedding that innocent blood Numbers 35:33. This reference in Amos to whitewash may also further illuminate the deeper meaning of Yeshua's words. Alas, oi! A warning to you, scribes and Be'olshim, set-apart ones, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In the same way, you appear outwardly righteous to people, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and devoid of law, that is, without Torah. Matthew 23, 27 to 28 Let's take a look now at Amos 2, verse 2. And I will send fire in Moab. And it will eat the citadels of Ha-Kir-Yot, and death in an uproar will come to Moab amid the sounding in the voice of the shofar the ram's horn let's take a look at the first phrase and I will send fire in Moab and it will eat the citadels of Ha Kiryot now Ha yot can be understood as both All the cities, being a feminine plural for city, Kiryot, and as a specific city of Moab, Ha-Kiryot. This city is mentioned in Jeremiah 48.24. Either way, destruction against the entire people of Moab is denoted. Just as Moab had offered a king of Edom on the walls of Edom's defences as a burnt sacrifice to their false gods, so now God will burn Moab and devour its cities. The next phrase reads, And death in an uproar will come to Moab amid the sounding, that is, teruah, the shofar sound of warning and judgment, in the voice. Of the ram's horn, it's not a trumpet as many English translations mistranslate. A trumpet is usually made of silver, brass, etc., but a shofar, a ram's horn, that is sounded in this verse. The symbolic significance of the ram's horn, which finds its origin in a portion of Torah called Ha Akida, the Binding of Isaac, that is Genesis 22 is important to understand here as connected to the beginning of the scroll of Amos, not only in the name of the village which Amos comes from, but also in relation to his calling, that is, to warn, to pronounce judgment. The shofar warning of the coming judgment through warfare, which is sounded from the beginning of the scroll, is here reiterated against Moab. In the midst of battle and destruction, she will hear again the warning call of the shofar of God, a reminder that she had every opportunity to repent and did not. In like manner, the final great shofar blast, Tekia Kidola, announcing Yom Haden, the Judgment Day, will strike terror in the hearts of those who have rejected God's warning and his offer of redemption. Verse 3. And I will cut off, that is kill, a judge from her inner part, and all her princes will be slain with him says Adonai the Lord. And I will cut off, kill a judge from her inner part and all her princes will be slain with him, says Adonai the Lord. Most scholars agree that the judge in question is probably the king of Moab who acted as judge over his people. This is supported by the following clause which alludes to the princes or sub-rulers of Moab being slain. This took place five years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, that is, between 589 and 587 BCE. Verse 4 Here is what Adonai vav Vavhei, Mercy, the Lord, says Upon three rebellions of Yuda, Yudha means praise, and upon four I will not turn away. Upon their rejecting et Torat the instructions of Yudhe Vavha and the prescribed limits they have not guarded, and astray they wander because of lies which their fathers walked in. Let's take the first phrase upon three rebellions of Yudah, even upon four. Having addressed all the neighbors of Israel and Judah, the prophet now speaks the word of the Lord to the chosen people Israel, beginning with the tribe of Judah, including, of course, Benjamin, and concluding with the northern tribes, here called Israel as distinct from Judah. We note that God is just. Judging Judah with the same formula used in judgment of the heathen nations that neighbor her. The next phrase says, Upon their rejecting the instructions of the Lord and the prescribed limits they have not guarded. The indictment against Judah differs in regard to the specific laws that Judah has broken. Being ignorant of the specific laws of distinction commanded to Israel, the nations had nonetheless sinned in regard to the universal laws of morality contained within the Torah as an indictment against all sin. Judah, on the other hand, had sinned not only in regard to general morality, but also in regard to the very specific laws given by God to his chosen, set-apart people. Laws relating to identity, purity, cleanliness, worship, and so on. Judah has rejected et Torat, the instructions contained within the wealth of the Holy Scriptures which were accessible to them at that point in history. This includes, but isn't limited to, the Torah, parts of the record of the kings, the writings of King Solomon the Psalms of David and numerous earlier prophets. We note that while many claim Torah teachings refers to the Torah alone, they can't explain why the text uses et Torah meaning the instructions or teachings rather than ha Torah which refers specifically to the five books of Moshe. The Torah is, of course, part of the greater number of instructions being alluded to, but it is not the only instruction that had been given to Israel, including Judah, by that time in her history. The Hebrew translated as and commands in most English versions of the Bible does not carry the same meaning as the Hebrew mitzvot, but is from the root chok meaning limit denoting prescribed boundaries portions and civil conduct it is specifically used to point toward the social injustices being committed within the framework of god's justice the next phrase reads and astray they wander because of lies which their fathers walked in judah hasn't just wandered she continues to wander she has gone astray because of generational sin. Her fathers, that is her forebears, having adopted the idolatry of the inhabitants of the land, and syncretized, that is, mixed it into their worship of Yodhe Vavhe, the god of Israel. They have now passed their sin to the subsequent generations. The Jewish commentator Kimchi notes that the lies referred to were those of the false prophets. Regardless of the origin of the lies, the point is that Judah had traded the truth of Hashem for lies. Verse 5 And I will send fire upon Judah, and it will eat the citadels of Yehoshalayim. God is no respecter of persons, meaning he shows no partiality. Thus, the punishment against Judah mirrors that of her neighbors. The temple in Jerusalem and the palaces of the king of Judah and his princes were burned with fire when Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonian army approximately 200 years after this prophecy was spoken. These events happened in 589 to 587 BCE. Verse 6 reads Here is what Yudhei Vavhe Adonai says Upon three rebellions of Yisrael, and upon four I will not turn away, upon their selling for silver a righteous one, and the needy in order to get a pair of sandals. The first phrase reads, Upon three rebellions of Israel and upon four. While Israel, in the form of the northern tribes, is being delineated as a unique entity, the pursuant allusion to the deliverance from Egypt draws on the united experience of the twelve tribes of Israel. Therefore, in part, the judgment against the northern tribes is also an indictment against Judah. This is, of course, not the case where specific northern locations and sin practices are referred to. The next phrase reads, Upon their selling for silver a righteous one. In this context, given that disregard for God's instructions is the premise for the judgment, it's likely that the plain meaning, selling for silver a righteous one, alludes to the sale of a man who is without debt, this being akin to slavery and contrary to the Torah, Deuteronomy fifteen, seven to eleven, and Leviticus twenty five, thirty nine to forty three. The singular phrasing, a righteous one, seems intentional and looks back to the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers and forward to the sinful actions of Judah Ishkayot, Judas Iscariot. The rabbis who appointed Amos 2, 6-3, 8 as the half Torah portion to go with Vayishev, Dwelt Yaakov, Genesis 37, 1-40, 23, clearly understood this portion of amos to refer specifically to an individual who was sold for silver. The next phrase reads, and the needy in order to get a pair of sandals. This describes the heinous act of selling on an indentured poor person for a pitiful sum, thus openly devaluing that person. This is also in direct opposition to the command concerning those poor who have no other choice but to sell themselves into indentured service. The Torah requires justice in these circumstances and the release of that person at the end of their term of service. Leviticus 25. Verse 7 reads, That breathe heavily upon dust of the land on the head of the ones who are low, and the way of the humble they have bent, and a man and his father enter the same servant girl with intent to pollute my holy name. First the phrase, that breathe heavily upon dust of the land on the head of the ones who are low. This is a Hebrew idiom that speaks directly to the oppression of those in the community who are suffering. Again, this contradicts the Torah which states, You shall not pervert the justice that is owed to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will not acquit the guilty. Exodus 23, 6-7. The next phrase, And the way of the humble they have bent. The humble are not synonymous with the poor, as some wrongly conclude. This is in fact referring to the righteous remnant who walk humbly before God. Micah 6, 8. This particular indictment, therefore, regards the intentional harming of the livelihood and future of the righteous ones living among the community. The next phrase reads, A man and his father enter the same servant girl. Not only is the sharing of the same woman by father and son considered repugnant universally, it is also specifically outlawed by the Torah, Leviticus eighteen seven to 8 and verse 15, and Leviticus twenty eleven to 12 Additionally, using any woman in this way, be she a servant or otherwise, was strictly forbidden. According to the Torah, women were to be honoured and cared for in the ancient Israelite community. Where a man received sex from a woman, he was obligated to marry and provide for her In an age when survival as an abandoned woman was difficult. The next phrase reads, With intent to pollute my holy name. While many read this phrase as being a separate indictment against idolatry, which is unrelated to the sexual sin named in the previous clause, I understand it as being related. The sexual sin in the previous clause is made more heinous due to the fact that the man and the son in question are performing these acts as part of a syncretized worship practice which names the God of Israel. It is an abhorrent desecration of the holy name that unites the immoral sexual sin act with the worship of false gods and links the entire practice to the worship of the God of Israel. As modern believing men, we may look upon this vile sin retrospectively from our position in history and say, thank God that I haven't done anything that terrible. And yet, today, believing men throughout the world and their sons lust after the same actresses, sportswomen, and models. Yeshua says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew five twenty seven 27-28 Therefore, rather than smugly tutting our tongues at ancient Israel, we would do well to repent and rely on Messiah's strength to maintain our walk with integrity. Exodus twenty seventeen reads, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Reading on Amos chapter 2 verse 8. And upon clothing bound in pledge, stretched out near every altar, and the wine of those condemned, fined, they drink in a house of their God. We note that this is speaking of the ten northern tribes, so that when the text says, Bait a house of their God, it is not speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, something that is wrongly inferred by the standard English translation, which reads, in the house of their God. The northern tribes were not worshipping God at the appointed place, the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, according to the command of Torah, but were instead worshipping him and or other deities alongside him at various high places in the north, one of the chief locations being Beit El, Bethel, house of God. Therefore, God is commanding punishment upon the northern tribes regarding their practice of syncretism, the assimilation of heathen practices into their worship of the God of Israel, which is one of the reasons Hashem has said a man and his father enter the same servant girl with intent to pollute my holy name. In other words, their whole intention from the beginning in performing these lewd sex acts was to pollute God's name. The next phrase reads, Upon clothing bound in pledge, stretched out near every altar. This also indicates the false worship of the north, given that there is only one altar in Yerushalayim. This refers to withholding the garments taken from poor people in pledge. Deuteronomy 4.17, Job 22.6 and Job 24.3-4 and 9. They were compounding the sin by laying the garments out in worship of either false gods or in hypocritical worship of the God of Israel in syncretism with false gods. Thus the poor are left shivering in the night while their garments are being used as an offering to God by wicked people who have plenty. The next phrase reads, The wine of those find they drink in the house of their God. The Hebrew allows for the readings, In a house of their God, or in a house of their gods. In other words, they are not necessarily even worshipping the God of Israel. The wine can be understood as the wine that should have been given to the poor, suffering, and the dying as means of pain management, Proverbs 31, 6-7. Or it can be understood as wine gained by fining innocent people. Either way, and whether or not they are drinking the wine in worship of the God of Israel or some other deity, The sin is a vile desecration of the Torah. Verse 9 And I, indeed, I destroyed the Amorite from before their faces, whose height was like cedar's height, and strong was he, like oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from higher up still, and his roots from beneath. What follows is a summary of Israel's journey. Throughout, God is faithful, and throughout, Israel is rebellious, unfaithful, and in need of discipline. We note that this is a reference to Numbers 13 and 14, which record the sending of the spies and the rebellion of Israel born of a fearful report concerning the inhabitants of the land. Therefore, this rebuke likens the rebellion of the northern tribes to that of all Israel in approaching the land of promise, a rebellion that resulted in their wandering for another 40 years. The metaphor used points to the fact that when a people gives in to fear of anyone or anything other than yod that people are prone to rebel against him. Instead of trusting in yod heh they have trusted in the strength of the false gods of the land, gods which Hashem has and will uproot and remove. We remember that the fear of God is an end to fear and its fruit. The metaphor of the mighty oaks is meant to show that even something as strong and enduring as the oak is subject to God's might. Where the cedars of Lebanon are high, they are nonetheless vulnerable to strong winds, whereas the oak is both high and strong, thick, able to withstand strong winds. However, God is higher and stronger still, and His Spirit, His Ruach, His wind, can tear up even the strongest tree, Thus, the intimidating Amorites, whom Israel feared when told of their stature, were uprooted, that is, the source of their strength was removed. Verse 10. And I, I caused you all to ascend from the land of Egypt, Mitzrayim, meaning double distress, a symbol of slavery. And you all walked in the desert forty years, to take possession of the land from the Amorites. This is a reminder of the consequences of Israel's rebellion, as well as being a reminder of God's faithfulness. In spite of Israel's rebellion, God made the defeat of the Amorites possible. Verse 11, And I raised up from your children some to be prophets, and from your young men some to be Nazarites, that is, consecrated ones is this not so benai israel children of israel declares yhdvhe the lord first the phrase and i raised up from your children some to be prophets throughout israel's history up to that point god had raised up prophets from joseph the son of jacob to moses to joshua to samuel and so on in this particular accusation, all Israel is included, hence the use of the words benai Yisrael. Upon hearing these words from Amos, few Israelites would have been able to forget the following words from the Torah. Devarim or Deuteronomy 18:15 15-19 The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. The next phrase reads, From your young men, some to be Nazarites. The Hebrew Nazir Nazarite, from the root nazar, means consecrated. We read about the Nazarite vow in Numbers 6, 1-21, which explains that a person who takes this vow does so of their free will, out of a desire to set themselves apart as devoted to God. The next phrase reads, Is this not so, children of Israel, declares Adonai the Lord. To paraphrase, Have I not given you ample warning, children of Israel? Verse 12 reads, And you forced the Nazarites to drink wine, and you placed upon the prophets orders, saying, You shall not prophesy. In spite of the goodness of God in giving Israel righteous ones to direct them toward him, Israel rebelled, by defiling those righteous ones either by tempting or by forcing violation of their vows upon them in the case of the prophets israel had hated what they heard and had told the prophets of god to be silent while inviting the false prophets to speak interestingly amaziah the apostate priest of bethel would later tell amos to go away and prophesy to judah Amos 7.12-13 Following this, Amos speaks the word of the Lord, which quotes the people of Israel, saying, You say, don't prophesy against Israel, and don't drop the word against the house of Isaac. Amos 7.16b Therefore, for the duration of the ten years of the prophetic ministry of Amos, Israel willfully ignored his warning to repent for their demanding that the prophets of God be silent. And instead, nearing the end of his ministry, they repeated this sin like children with their fingers in their ears, yelling, la, 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 la. Verse 13. Behold, now pay attention, I am making a rut beneath you, like that which is made by the pressing down of the cart when it's filled with sheaves of grain. The verse opens with the Hebrew word hine. It's a wake-up call. Pay attention now would be a better modern translation than the Old English Behold. The metaphor of the heavily laden cart at harvest time is poignant. At this time in history, Israel was heavily laden with riches and success, just like the overloaded cart at harvest time. However, her successes would soon weigh her down so as to make a rut beneath her that she will not be able to climb out of. This is essentially a metaphor describing the fruit of the love of worldly wealth, 1 Timothy 6.10. The love of worldly wealth being a form of idolatry. Israel had planted the seed of rebellion in the soil of her abundance and comfort and would soon reap the fruit of rebellion, destruction. Verse 14. And escape will perish from the swift and the strong will not be strengthened because of his power, and the mighty will not deliver his soul. Although Israel considered herself strong at this point in history, she would nonetheless be unable to escape. Her strong men will be unable to overcome in the coming fire of judgment, in spite of their strength. They will not even be able to deliver themselves. Verse 15. And the one who grasps the bow will not stand, the swift in foot will not slip away, and the rider of the horse will not save his soul. The bowman will fail to have an effect in the coming battle that will topple the northern kingdom, and the fastest runners will not be able to escape, nor will the rider on the swiftest horse be able to save even himself. Finally, verse 16. And the mighty of heart among the mighty ones will flee naked in that day, declares Yudhe Vafhe, Mercy Adonai the Lord. The most courageous of Israel's warriors will flee naked, meaning unarmed, shaking like terrified children in that promised day when God brings the fire of his discipline against the northern tribes. This is something God declares through Amos as a foregone conclusion. Will he relent? The answer is most certainly not. Because he is holy, he is loving. Because he is loving, he is just. Because he is just, he cannot allow injustice to go unaccounted for. The scripture tells us that God is love. Good. Now let's go and learn what love really is. We don't define love, God does. Any love founded in the temporal fallen nature of human emotion is false love. We know that God is love. The scripture says so. Good. Now let's go and learn who love is. Thanks for joining me again for Line Upon Line. If you'd like to read the commentary that I've written to go along with this episode, you can go to the website of our kehila, which is www.bethmalek.com, and on the home page look for the tab that says Yaakov's Commentary. Click on that tab and the most recent commentary will be at the top. Alternatively, if you're listening to the episodes out of sequence, then simply look through the commentaries for the one titled Amos Chapter 2. If you enjoyed the podcast, share it with family and friends and subscribe to it. I hope you'll be able to join me for the next episode, which will be a line-upon-line study of Amos Chapter 3. Shalom Lechem.